Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we're joined by Wesley Lowry and Kimberly Kimbrough from the Washington Post to discuss their latest data around homicide clearance rates. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Now, this week was an unusual week because we have been talking about Colin Kaepernick and Nike. We saw Cory Booker push back on the Senate committee around Kavanaugh and release the documents. And it made me think about what does sacrifice mean? What does it actually mean to sacrifice? We think about the Nike ad that talks about sacrifice. And when I think about it, I think about what it means to walk into the risk. What does it mean to walk into things that are uncertain because you know you're on the right side of justice or equity? And that to me is what I carry. That like when people ask me what we did in St. Louis and in Ferguson in the first wave of the protests, And like what made us special, like why is that moment important? At the most basic level, I think that we walked into the risk. We walked right into it when people told us that we weren't going to win, when people told us it wasn't the right way to do it because we knew we were on the right side of justice. So my advice to you this week is walk into the risk. And I'm on the book tour. So I'll be in a city near you. We had a packed house in New York, in D.C., in Atlanta. I'm coming to St. Louis. I'm coming to Texas soon. So a lot of cities across the country. I'll be there. Hope to see you there. You can find out where I'll be on tour at DeRay.com. And you can also buy the book at DeRay.com or any bookstore that is near you. And also, if you've already bought the book, please do me a solid and go on Amazon and rate the book because those five-star ratings actually do matter. So if you've already read the book, please go on Amazon, rate the book. Those five stars matter. Buy the book. I appreciate you. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Third. I, I, I. You know, Clint, uh, I had a book talk last night and somebody came up to me and they were like, Dre, we love I, I, I. And I was like, warms my heart. Warms <laughs> oh, my Lord. heart. What is this? A year and a half later, and, and I can't shake it. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So, y'all, um, I think we owe a shout-out to three heroes of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings this week. Uh, certainly Senator Kamala Harris, Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, bang, bang. and last but certainly not least, Senator Cory Booker from what I will call the great state of New Jersey because good, they clearly breed fighters there. He came out ready. Blah, hashtag blah. bring it. Hashtag I will release these documents. Hashtag go ahead, put me under the jail. Hashtag I stand for the people. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it was dope. When Corey said bring it, I was like, okay, Corey. Okay, Corey. Okay. <laughs> the really messed up part of this is, I mean, we talked about it last week, right? We talked about the fact that the GOP was intentionally blocking 100,000 pages of documents 
from Brett Kavanaugh's time in the Bush administration that are key to vetting somebody who's going to get a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court and then tried to release 30 some odd thousand documents overnight the night before the hearing started. Still 70,000 documents that are being hidden. You left the people no choice and you knew this is what it would come to, that people would have to break the rules. But, you know. I mean, all all in the name of transparency, all in the name of freedom, all in the name of justice. I'm glad that somebody was about it. I'm glad that they were like ready to fight on behalf of the American people. And it was smart because, you know, they knew that it would take two thirds of vote in the Senate to remove any senator. So, you know, we see the Republicans playing all kinds of tricks all day, every day, because they know that they have a majority and they can do whatever they want until the election. And I think, you know, Democrats finally realized that the rules uh, have continually been broken and they actually have some institutional power uh, to fight back, right? And I think that that's finally what we're starting to see Democrats do. And I'm glad because, uh, you know, we can't have this environment where Amen. Republicans do whatever they want and Democrats are just like, but, but, but the rules. He was like, do you have that 60 though? If you ain't got that 60, here come these pages. Right. I think that people for a long time have just been ready for a fight, right? That the Republicans have been running roughshod over everything. And the Democrats are doing the like, well, you know, we should talk about it. And like, finally, the the wildest part of the Corey thing was, so Corey says it. And then all of a sudden, the other senators are like, me too, kick me out. And then somebody else is like, right. you can kick me Take out too. I'm like, out. oh, okay, okay. Everybody Boom. came to fight today. And I just remember... I was watching the the Kamala Harris um, opening, you know, sort of interrogation. That's what it was. It was an interrogation of Kavanaugh. And man, when she was like, do you know anybody at the law firm associated <laughs> with Donald Trump's personal lawyer? Oh, yes. And my man was, I've never seen a person so squirmy in my life. Uh, I was squirming on the couch. Uh, I was like, oh my God, do I know uh, somebody at the, the law office or something? <laughs> Was, you never want to get questioned that way by a black woman. Whenever yo, a black woman puts her hand on her head like that and she starts asking you questions in that tone and with that uh, with that cadence, A, that means she already knows the answer. Right. <laughs> and she's trying to see if you're going to tell the truth or lie. And B, you're not going to get out of this no matter how you try. Which I is why like, he didn't. He was like, I, uh, I was up there Googling the law firm. Like, I'm like, I got to know about this law firm because, <laughs> oh boy, don't know. what He's like, He's like, well, who do you have in mind? She's like, that wasn't my question. And then Senator Hirono came through and was like, let's talk about your rulings and how you clearly do not understand the governance or culture of Native Hawaiians and Native Alaskans. And mm. this is problematic to people. Like, if you, if you cannot support the people who are indigenous to this country, then what are you possibly doing in, in line for the court? Yeah, that was special. It was ready. But call your senators, everyone. Brett Kavanaugh is dangerous to our future. And, you know, something else that, that recently happened, we should talk about the passing of Mac Miller. I met Mac at a concert a few years ago, and he was so incredibly kind, and, like, his commitment to the work of justice was so clear. And when I, I got out of a meeting and I looked on Twitter and I saw he was trending, I was like, what happened? And it was like he overdosed, and it just reminded me about how real addiction is um, and how much work we have to do to help people enter into recovery and get treatment that works and, and has an impact. It is very, very real. I know a lot of us were tuned into the Bobby Brown story on BET this week. Um, 
And, you know, there are lots of sides to that story. And unfortunately, Bobby Christina and Whitney Houston are not here to tell theirs. Um, but if there's nothing that we have learned this week, we are clear both from that film and from the untimely and really, really tragic death of Mac Miller, that addiction is terrible on all sides uh, and that it is, is, it is a disease um, that needs taken care of. And if you or anyone you know is having trouble with substance abuse or addiction, you can call 1-800-622-HELP. That is the national helpline for substance abuse. There was another incredibly unfortunate and untimely death this week in Dallas, um, and forgive me if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, but Botham Shem Jean or Jean um, was killed by a Dallas police officer standing in his own apartment. The police officer walked into an apartment that she thought was hers um, and shot and killed Botham. Uh, and it goes, uh, unfortunately, without saying that being Black in this country um, continues to be unsafe, even when you are in your own home. Yeah, I mean, this case, first of all, I just don't buy the police narrative, right? He was a neighbor of hers. Um, she says she just sort of barged into an apartment that wasn't hers and thought it was hers. I don't know how that happens unless, I mean, maybe she was under the influence. I'm not sure. Um, but it just seems like that's what you would say if you wanted to kill somebody, right? And I think, you know, we have to be constantly pushing back on whatever police narrative there is because we've seen time and time again how that narrative uh, sort of decomposes as evidence emerges. And so, you know, I'm glad that it seems like the that manslaughter charges are going to be brought against her. Uh, we've seen how rare it is for officers to be charged at all with anything uh, in these cases. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, there will be some semblance of justice uh, in this case and that we'll get to the bottom of exactly what happened. Because, I, I mean, I, again, I just don't buy this police narrative at all. Certainly hoping to see justice happen in that case. I will say a reminder about the difference between accountability and justice that, that even if she's charged, even if she's convicted, that won't bring him back. And that that will be accountability and that's necessary. But justice is never having to experience a trauma in the first place. And what we see with this is that like this event is a reminder of the extreme power and flexibility that we give officers. Like who even the fact that some people are like, we need to wait for all the facts. It's like if a private citizen walked into somebody else's house and killed them immediately, people would be like, that was wild. But the police do it. And people are like, well, I think we need more information. It's like, what is the more like, I don't even know. Just like I have actually gone to the wrong door before an apartment complex and like knocked on the door and been like, Oh, like I'm at the wrong place or like in a hotel. You entered into the, like, how did you not realize, like, you didn't live there? Like, like you said, Sam, the police's narrative doesn't make sense at all. Like, I've been into a lot of places and I'm like, immediately, oh, this is the wrong place. Yeah, but you didn't go weapon drawn, like, ready to shoot somebody. Right. Right. How do you go from there to, okay, let me kill the person living here? Like, that is wild. Right. Now on to the news of the week. We continue to see a number of attacks coming against people of color and people from marginalized communities who are trying to engage in the most important office, as Barack Obama says, the office of citizen, as they work to exercise their right to vote. Um, so I want to tell you the story of Crystal Mason, if you haven't heard it already. And if you have, you know exactly where the story is about to go. Um, Crystal Mason is a mother of three living in Fort Worth, Texas, right outside of Dallas. 
And in the 2016 election, she went to her local polling place. She said she wanted to set an example for her kids and make sure that they knew that voting was one of the most important things they could do. She walked up and found out that her name was actually not on the list. And so she filed, as people often do, a provisional ballot. It's happened to me before. It just means that you sign a piece of paper saying that you can vote and you fill out your ballot, put it in an envelope, and it gets sent to the Board of Elections. What she didn't know is that she was, in fact, ineligible to vote. Uh, She had served five years for tax fraud. She was on supervised release, um, and she had been abiding by all of the rules of of said release. Uh, And she, along with 500,000 other Texans, are ineligible to vote for the exact same reason, that they had committed a second-degree felony. Because she didn't know this at the time, and because she did not see on that piece of paper a line that says uh, that you swear by signing this that you are eligible to vote, she is now facing five years in prison in the state of Texas. This is exactly what we mean when we talk about voter intimidation. Five years for going to exercise your right to vote in order to send a message to other people that you might as well go ahead and stay home. The wild part of all of this um, is not only that she's facing five years for this simple act, but that actually voter fraud is not a widespread problem across the country or even in Fort Worth, Texas. In fact, um, people not voting enough is the problem that they are facing. Uh, 6% of eligible voters actually voted in the last midterms in Fort Worth, and 1.5% of those who are eligible to vote between the ages of 18 and 35 voted in Fort Worth. And so for trying to exercise that right to vote, not being aware that she was ineligible, which, by the way, shouldn't even be the case, she is now facing five years in prison. Uh, Crystal Mason is someone who we should be thinking about every single time we have an opportunity to vote because her and 500,000 other people, 1.5 million people in the state of Florida, people all over this country are being turned away at the ballot box because they committed a crime and even though they've paid their debt to society, are not eligible to participate in the citizenry as we all are. I'm disgusted by the outcome of this case and it's something that we should all be thinking about as we continue to fight to re-enfranchise voters all across this country. So I have three observations about this case. The first is that this is clearly an attempt at using this one case in order to set an example to suppress the vote writ large, right? For people who don't know whether they are eligible to vote. So, you know, we've talked about this in the past. In addition to the 6 million people who are prohibited from voting currently because of a felony conviction. There are another 6 million people who actually are eligible to vote, who've served uh, the terms of their sentence, uh, but don't know that they are eligible to vote. Um, And that is because in many cases, when you are released from prison, when your term is up and you've served your time, uh, oftentimes states don't even notify you that you now have the ability to vote in states that don't permanently disenfranchise you, which is most states. Um, And so, you know, by doing this and in setting sort of an example by severely punishing somebody uh, who didn't even know that they couldn't vote, uh, that dissuades this broader population of millions of people uh, from being able to cast a vote. Because, I mean, who's going to vote if the potential punishment for being wrong about your eligibility to vote uh, is five years in prison? The second observation is how different the criminal justice system approaches 
a black woman who didn't know whether or not she could vote, and a white male uh, potential Supreme Court nominee who lied multiple times in this confirmation hearing. Uh, Many people are saying that he committed perjury, but the thing is that with perjury, a crime that oftentimes is levied against people in positions of power who are often under oath, that you have to prove intent, right? So you would have to prove that he intentionally didn't know uh, and that, or that he intentionally knew what he was saying was a lie uh, and that he lied anyway under oath. Whereas in this case, they didn't have to prove intent at all. Uh, in fact, she didn't intentionally you know, commit a crime. She didn't even know in the first place that she couldn't vote. Um, and so that sort of double standard in how the law is written uh, and who those laws tend to apply, be applied to uh, is sort of creates this double standard where we see people going to jail for things uh, that are uh, you know, far less severe and consequential than some of the things that we see folks like Brett Kavanaugh uh, getting away with that, that impact so many people. And then the third thing that's interesting, you know, in thinking about turnout in Fort Worth, you know, Brittany, you said how turnout is ridiculously low. So the last mayoral election there in 2017 was decided by 13,000 votes. The difference was 13,000 votes between the candidates uh, and a total of only a a little over 30,000 people voted in that election. 30,000 people in a city uh, that is over 800,000 people. There are over 800,000 people in Fort Worth. Uh, And so this is interesting because when you look at, you know, where are these sort of pockets of potential voters if you look at college campuses in that area, uh, Tarrant County College, for example, has an enrollment of 53,000 students in Fort Worth. 53,000 students. Uh, and yet you have elections for mayor, only 32,000 people in the entire city vote, and it's decided by 13,000 votes. So you have a situation where if just one campus decided that if all the students decided to vote, they could pretty much elect whoever they wanted mayor of Fort Worth. And that isn't unique to Fort Worth. That's the case in many cities where, uh, you know, mayoral elections, major elections are decided by, you know, uh, maybe 10,000 votes, a couple thousand votes. Sometimes they're decided in the primary because who Whoever wins the Democratic primary often wins the general. So, you know, it, it isn't hard to imagine a sort of a different world where, um, you know, you have people on campuses, people who tend not to turn out, decide to turn out and can fundamentally change who's in elected office uh, in really important positions like the mayor. Yeah, I think you all both gave really important and comprehensive sort of uh, frame frameworks around uh, why this is so important. And, and for me, just just a couple observations. Um one, I mean, obviously, this is super relevant in Texas because uh, lots of polls are showing that Beto O'Rourke is within striking distance, literally within a point or two of of Ted Cruz, and this is for the first the first time that uh, a Texas race for the Senate has been that close in in decades, I think. Um, and and so, you know, this is literally every vote matters. I think I read that there were six hundred thousand people who were disenfranchised from. Uh, access to the polls as a result of voter disenfranchisement laws in Texas. And and if you consider, you know, how close this race could very well be, um, every, you know, only a couple dozen votes in every piece, precinct will will matter. But but more generally with regard to the relationship between uh, voter suppression and, and black folks, I, I think, you know, an interesting thing to think about is that if you look at the top 10 blackest states in the United States, nine of them don't let you vote if you're serving any type of sentence. And five of the 10 blackest states restrict your vote, 
even after you've served your sentence. And in what surely, uh, you know, must be a coincidence, Maine and Vermont are the two whitest states in the country. And they are also the two states that allow people to vote while they are in prison, not after they have been released, but literally while that people are still incarcerated. And so it is, it is difficult to believe uh, that it is merely happenstance that the whitest states in the country, the most homogeneously white states in the country, allow people to vote while they are still in prison, while nine of the 10 states with the highest black populations per capita um, don't let you vote if you're serving any type of sentence, whether it be parole, probation, what have you. Um, and so, you know, these these statistics, I think we can throw statistics at folks as a means of trying to communicate how important and urgent and relevant these things are. And sometimes those can get lost, but I think this is really important in understanding the the fundamental relationship of racism and the legacy of Jim Crow to the sort of contemporary policies around voting and voting access that exist today. And it is, I think, also often people attempt to disaggregate and disentangle the conversation around voter suppression from, like, people will say, oh, well, you know, voter suppression exists, but, uh, you know, that is different than the people who who simply don't vote. Like, I think, I think we simply, we fail to understand the myriad of ways by which voter suppression acts upon communities, even when some of the people within those communities could still ostensibly vote. But like if there is a sort of large mass of voter suppression and intimidation, uh, as, ex- as is exemplified by the story that Brittany talked about, um, we, we have to account for the ways in which that sort of larger cloak of fear and intimidation shapes what the turnout uh, is going to look like for, for a larger uh, community of people. You know, my news this week is also about voting. And more than a couple of months ago, we had the woman, Kat Colvin, who, who started Spread the Vote, uh, which is about helping people get ID and voter ID states. Uh, we had her on and talk about it. So there's a shout out to Spread the Vote. So go Google Spread the Vote. But I was looking at an article that talked about voter ID again, and we've heard about voter ID many times. And there were some things that I didn't know. So I knew it was hard to get um, a license in a lot of places. And I knew that it was costly. And I knew that the impact on older people was disproportionate because there are some people who, like, they just can't get their birth certificate or, like, they don't know. They're, they're old enough that, like, there might not have been a recording of their birth in a given town. or So that the process actually becomes really hard. And another piece of news that we covered a while ago was about the decline in driver's licenses, that people all across the country are just, just getting driver's licenses at a lower rate. And what happens when we predicate systems like voting on needing a license? And most people only get licenses because they drive, not because they just like have licenses going around. But what I didn't know is that there are places like in Georgia, for instance, that require um, a record of every single name change. So it mainly affects older women who have been married more than one time and they have to get like documentation for every single name changing event. So uh, in the article, the person talks about like, you have to go to the random County that the divorce was filed in and like get a record of that. And then you have to make sure that it's like completely documented. You have to do it. And, and it's like, who does that, why does that even matter? Like, what does that, like, how does that help anybody? It, it clearly is just like a bureaucratic red tape to make sure that people can't comply. And there's another example in Georgia of saying that like a birth certificate and photo ID is $57. And there's like an older person who lives on their disability check. And like, that actually isn't disposable income, that that is a, 
a lot of money when you think about not only the $57, but like getting to the place to get it and like the bus and the transportation, like those things are much harder than people think. And I think that there are a lot of people who look at Voter ID and they're like, oh, everybody should have a license. And we've already covered that. But just thinking about who is impacted, like not only people of color and not only poor people, people in poverty, but when you think about the impact on older voters, and that matters because we know that older people just vote more. But what happens when you disenfranchise like all the older black voters, right? Like voter ID is disproportionately impacting them. And I just hadn't thought about it that explicitly until I prepared for the news this week. You know, Jerry, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, The other day I retweeted a graphic showing just how difficult um, voter IDs are making voting and how much they impact various marginalized communities, especially seniors. Um, And someone responded saying, you know, $15 isn't a hardship. Uh, And I, along with hundreds of other people, reminded that person that, A, $15 actually is a hardship for a lot of people, which is a problem unto itself. But B, It shouldn't even matter how much money it is because it's a poll tax. Poll taxes are unconstitutional. We just have to stay centered in some facts here, including how much these poll taxes disenfranchise particular groups of people. But at the foundation, a poll tax violates the Equal Protection Clause. The Supreme Court stated this in 1966. At the time, there were 11 Southern states that had things like poll taxes, literacy tests and other things in order to intentionally disenfranchise black people. That is part of the reason why when lots of people a few weeks ago were celebrating the anniversary of the right of women to vote on August 18th, we have to remind people that that is actually the day when some women got the right to vote because black women across the South were not being treated the same at polling places as white women in other parts of the country. In 1964, the 24th Amendment was passed and it prohibited poll taxes in federal elections. In 1966, the case came to the court to eliminate poll taxes in state elections because there were still five states at the time that required poll taxes in state elections. Poll taxes are unconstitutional. Poll taxes are unconstitutional. Poll taxes are unconstitutional. Yeah, Dre, I would think the the point you make about the fact that so many folks who grew up in and who were born in and came of age during the era of Jim Crow, um, didn't have access to to birth certificates is is a point that is overlooked and and often forgotten or not even fully considered at all by by a lot of people who who are espousing some of the same things that you're referring to be where you know oh it's not that difficult if you were really this this idea of commitment right like I'm really interested in the way that people are are like conceiving of what reflects someone's commitment to vote or not and and saying like oh if you can't you know, if you don't aren't willing to sacrifice fifteen dollars, or if you're not willing to like go out of your way to get the idea without considering like the the legacy and the history um, and the sort of contemporary reality of things that make it so much more difficult for certain people to to have access to those things. And the primary issue is that it shouldn't matter, right? Like these, it shouldn't. This shouldn't be a question of like, oh, if you're dedicated enough to do certain things, then you. Uh, then you would be able to 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 vote um, if you actually wanted to. The f- the fact that there are certain people who have to do these things in the first place when it absolutely shouldn't be necessary, uh, I think is a problem unto itself. And and I think it, you know, part of this is just 
and I think that this was illuminated with the $15 um, example that you gave, Brittany, where a lot of this is just a, a profound failure of empathy. And I think a profound failure in our, our political and public discourse around folks being able to step outside of themselves and their own sets of experiences and the, their own sort of position within the social and political hierarchy um, that they occupy to understand why things that might seem easy or uh, simple or even frivolous to them um, are actually not any of those things for somebody coming from from a very different history, from a very different set of backgrounds. Yeah, to that point, Clint, I mean, how many people in these state legislatures in you know predominantly GOP states are actually people who themselves have experienced uh, not being able to afford something that costs $15, but was so critical, like an ID. I mean, how many of these state legislators have been in a situation where they themselves had trouble obtaining a birth certificate? Um, you know, all of these issues very rarely, if, if ever, would directly impact the people who are currently making these laws. And yet, you know, there's a profound lack of empathy uh, in being able to even understand, let alone empathize with people who are undergoing this, people who do face these barriers, predominantly people of color, uh, people who are low income, people in rural areas um, who have been you know, excluded in many ways from uh, policymaking uh, and being able to set these laws that directly impact them. And so that's uh, yet another reason why we need uh, institutions that reflect the communities that they actually uh, have uh, some jurisdiction over. Uh, and particularly when it comes to something so critical as voting in elections. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. A piece of news that I think hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves over the course of the last week or so is the fact that uh, Education Secretary Betsy $4 million yacht DeVos uh, is (laughs) refusing to take action against schools who uh, are using federal grant money under the Student Support and Academic Enrichment Grants to purchase firearms, uh, which is definitely uh, not how these federal funds uh, should be used morally or or legally. Um, and DeVos said that she, quote, had no intention of taking any action concerning the purchase of firearms or firearm training for school staff under the ESEA. Congress did not authorize me or the department to make those decisions. But that's not true uh, because as Democrats on the House Committee on Education and Workforce said, she is absolutely authorized to decide whether taxpayer money should be used to put guns in classrooms. And the fact that she won't say so uh, is both telling and alarming and is reflective of the fact that she's uh, essentially allowing this to happen without, while at the same time attempting to evade responsibility. And so according to page six of the federal guidance on how these grants should be allotted, uh, which we can upload on the website so that people have access to see for themselves. Uh, these grants are supposed to be used for things like improving access to foreign language instruction, arts and music education, uh, supporting college and career counseling, promoting access to accelerated learning opportunities, including AP classes and IB programs. Uh, it would be very difficult for you to look at the list of things for which these grants are supposed to be used and to come away with the fact that firearms or firearm training for teachers is something that would promote a healthy, uh, safe environment for, for the students there. Um, as Because as we've talked about, um, especially in the sort of aftermath of Parkland, um, w- there is all of the evidence shows that the guns in classrooms and in schools actually make uh, these places far more dangerous than they otherwise would be. And the Education Department proposal emerged uh, after Texas and Oklahoma asked federal officials how the funds should be used. And they were citing questions from local school districts who were asking themselves, like, could they use these grants to purchase guns? And education and gun safety advocates, I think, rightfully have contended that DeVos has the authority, as we said, to 
say you can't actually use this to purchase firearms because that is not what is listed on the list of things that would create an enriching academic environment as the grant is is meant for uh, for those students. And I think it's interesting also thinking about this coming from Oklahoma, like we're in a moment in which schools across the country are in such a desperate need of resources. And like teachers in Oklahoma went on strike just a few months ago because they're not paid enough and because some of them are still using textbooks from 30 years ago. Uh, and the fact that that this money would be considered, you know, as to be used for guns um, as opposed to so many of the other urgent, important uh, and and more relevant uh, means by which this, you know, the, the, it could be used in these classrooms and for these students is, is super unsettling. And DeVos is doing what she has been doing for the last two years, which is essentially um, breaking apart pieces of what public education looks like um, or what it should look like, uh, but doing it sort of under the radar as as much more high profile uh, things are are taking our attention in the news. And let's talk about that dismantling. She has made it harder for young people to pay back their mountains of student loans. She has made it easier for for-profit colleges to make their profit on the backs of vulnerable students. She has been talking about making it much more difficult for victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault on college campuses. And now she's talking more about arming teachers. And to top it all off, should any of these young people be having difficulties because of the work that she has been doing and the dismantling that has been happening at that department. She's also been dismantling the civil rights office at that department so that those young people don't even have a place to turn when those things go awry for them. And they will absolutely go awry for them. This is a moment to remind us that the federal department of education really matters for marginalized people. Often we have the conversation in education circles that the work is really done at the local and state level. And while a lot of that is true, there is a reason why the Federal Department of Education exists. There is a reason why we need federal mandates to protect the interests of marginalized students, of students of color, of indigenous students, of low-income students. Um, There is a reason why we have to make sure that things like Title I funding for low-income schools, Title IX assurances that um, people will be treated fairly according to their gender and their sexual identity, um, Things like Title VI, which used to be Title VII under ESSA, to ensure that Indigenous youth are being given the kinds of supports and funding that they deserve, and quite frankly, is not even high enough as it is. Those things have to occur at the federal level, because if they were happening at the state level, we would see even more vast inequities than the ones we're experiencing now. This is the latest in a long list of what is being done at this department to create greater inequities in our communities. And I mean, thinking about allowing these funds to go towards guns, guns aren't cheap, right? So a gun costs anywhere from $500 uh, upwards, right? And so we have teachers who can't afford uh, books and supplies for their students, uh, who, who can't afford you know, basic uh, connected devices in some cases for students to be able to uh, interact with, whether it's a, an iPad or, or some other device that, that can connect them to the, to the broader world and, 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 and all that's going on. And yet we have a situation where suddenly $500 on a gun is supposedly a, a good use of these funds, where training, you know, paying for uh, training uh, in gun safety, which by the way, who's going to get those contracts? Probably groups like the NRA. 
Um, you know, all of this money is just shifting money that could be spent on students, um, academic enrichment, shifting it into the pockets of people uh, who have actually been making students and educators less safe by making guns available, by advocating for laws that prevent uh, universal background checks and assault weapons bans and other policies that could actually prevent gun violence. Uh, and instead, they're being rewarded uh, with even more uh, potential money by allowing schools to use these funds to to purchase guns. I'm reminded of the way that deregulation works is that this is a great example of the role of the government to just be a clarifier around policy. And what they are doing in this aspect is they're just like, you know, the money can be spent for a host of things. And, you, and, and the states are like, but I didn't think it could be spent for this. And they're like, well, it's up to, you know, it's vague. And and this is actually one of the ways that deregulation works. The most obvious way is that you literally just peel back the regulations. The less obvious way is that you just provide no clarity when people need clarity. And that's what's happening here is that a DeVos's education department is just sort of like, oh, well, we don't, you know, like, we're not going to say where the money can go. It seems like Congress needs to do this. And they know they have the power to clear it up, but they're not. This also reminds me of what's happening with the loans is that there were a lot of protections for student loans happening from the federal government that the Obama administration put forth. DeVos is scaling back those protections and a set of states actually banded together and said, you know what, if the federal government won't do this, we'll do it. In an unprecedented move, the federal government actually is intervening and filed a letter of interest trying to stop those states from providing an additional layer of protection for students who get loans and saying that, like, because it's federal money, the federal government gets to decide. And again, that's another backhanded way to get to deregulation, like stopping other people from regulating even when the federal government won't. Uh, and I'm just reminded of the nefarious ways that deregulation shows up and the agenda shows up in the games that they play. All right. So last but not least, I have some good news to bring to the conversation. And that is uh, that last week, Rachel Rollins won the Democratic primary for district attorney in Suffolk County in Massachusetts. That's where the city of Boston is. And she defeated an incumbent who was supported with over $69,000 in donations from the police and police unions. Uh, And what's so incredible about her winning the Democratic nomination uh, is her agenda, her policy platform, uh, which is uh, far-reaching and powerful in its efforts to dismantle the system of mass incarceration and using uh, sort of the DA's office as a strategy. We've talked in the past how much power prosecutors have uh, over this system of mass incarceration. And uh, her agenda is calling for things like declining to prosecute low-level sort of broken windows uh, offenses, things like disorderly conduct and drug possession and uh, trespassing, uh, standalone resisting arrest charges. Uh, in all of these cases and many more things, uh, the she has promised not to prosecute these cases uh, as sort of the default position uh, of the prosecutor's office. Uh, and she has also called for a range of other uh, sort of reforms. Uh, but what's really important here is that she was uh, elected with high turnout from uh, Jamaica Plain, which is a neighborhood that is predominantly of people of color. Uh, we see in in these elections we've seen with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we saw uh, with Ayanna Presley uh, recently, uh, and and many other cases where um, you know people of color, especially women of color, are getting uh, elected now, are winning uh, major elections, whether it's the primary and hopefully in the general, uh, who are presenting a really strong uh, and impressive portfolio of policy solutions to actually uh, fundamentally begin to pull back on uh, 
this system of mass incarceration that has been allowed to sort of expand over decades. Um, and so I'm, you know, this is definitely a race to, ro- to watch. Boston is a major American city that would be impacted by this. Uh, and this also impacts policing as well, right? It's not just that uh, the prosecutor's office declines to, to charge people uh, for these types of low-level offenses, but it also disincentivizes the police from arresting people for these types of offenses um, because they know that they won't actually be able to, to charge those people that they've uh, arrested. Uh, and so, you know, this is a really important win. I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see more wins like this uh, all across the country. Uh, and this is necessary work, uh, changing these, you know, replacing these old DAs. Um, you know, I know we talked about Bob McCullough and Ferguson as, as a classic example, um, but this is necessary work in order to, to end mass incarceration in this country. So excited to have been spending my first week in Cambridge in the Boston area when this win occurred. I um, am a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics this semester. Um, Shout out to all the folks who uh, hopefully will come to my study group starting on September 18th, Tuesdays, 4.30 in the IOP. Get that plug in. um, Get that plug in. With it, like, come, come through. We're going to be talking about the future of social change and redefining power. Isn't this open to the public? Yes, you? it is open to the public. It is open to Harvard students from any school, undergraduates and graduate students. Please come. We're going to co-create a theory of social change together throughout our weeks. And I was really inspired by Rachel's win, by Ayanna Presley's win that happened on my second day there. Um, I was already planning on talking about the future of social change, but I really want to dig into what it means to redefine power and to reposition power as truly coming from the people, because that is what we witnessed in Cambridge uh, and in greater Boston on that day. That is what we witnessed when Andrew Gillum won in Florida, when Stacey Abrams won her primary, when Lucy McBath won her primary in Georgia. All over the country, we are experiencing these wins that I think some people see as stunning, but when you are really on the ground and in our communities and at our kitchen tables and in our barbershops, these are the kinds of wins that we have been working and hoping and striving for for such a long time. Wins of people who will truly reflect us and the progress that we want to make and will not be intimidated by the way that things are, but rather have imagination about the way that things can be. But this is also a reminder that, yes, in Boston, and in places that are heavily democratic, um, these primary wins are almost guaranteed general election wins. That's not the case in places like Georgia and Florida uh, and some other places. And so we have to make sure that we continue to show up. It's important to be registered, but it's even more important to actually show up on that day and make sure that your voice is heard. But I finally got some hope and it feels good. Yeah, Sam, I think you're you're 100% right. Um, and that in addition to the sort of laundry list of minor, petty, offenses that are largely a sort of criminalization of poverty, um, as we have seen documented again by the DOJ in in Ferguson and in Baltimore and throughout the country, um, not so much anymore under Jeff Sessions, but but certainly under the Obama administration, we got a, a sense of the, the extent to which uh, poverty is and continues to be criminalized by minor offenses. Uh, and Rollins ran on a platform of getting getting rid of those things and making sure that people were not being prosecuted for things that were tied to um, living in in poverty, and I think that's that's so important. But but as you mentioned, a huge part of how she won was the fact that she got turnout from places that historically uh, have not turned out for for these sorts of elections. And I think that that is so that is so crucial. I think as we saw with Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum and. Uh, 
and uh, you know, obviously Ocasio Cortez and and so many of the people that we've mentioned, uh, is that it is it is not simply that these folks have to get uh, you know people who who may have been like uh, Trump voters or people in the sub- affluent suburbs who are well educated white folks or or any of that. And that's not to say that those trying to get those votes don't matter, but it is to say that there is an uh, a untapped group of people who have felt disenfranchised and and really disillusioned from the democratic and electoral process for so long because they had people who were not serving their interest. Um, And I think that that's too what people are missing. I, you know, I'm the first person to say voting is essential and I think everybody should vote. Uh, But I also think that we uh, fail to understand sometimes the extent to which so many people have felt like they didn't have anything to vote for. Uh, and when you have people like Rollins and when you have people like Ocasio-Cortez and when you have people uh, like like Ayanna Presley who are just so inspiring and so uh, powerful and, and, and represent the sort of best versions of what these communities aspire towards and the sort of lives that they want to build for themselves and who are, who are unapologetic in saying that they are running on platforms of uh, uh, that are tied to the identities and the uh, and subsequently the the lives and the, the material conditions of the people in these communities then those people are motivated to turn out like it's not a this isn't a difficult formula and i think that that is why you know i think we look at these some of these poll numbers and you have to almost take it with a grain of salt now because everything has kind of been you know thrown into the wind like if you get these folks excited about someone who is going to work on their behalf and does so explicitly um and who recognizes that there is a profound imbalance in our political system and in in whom the, that political system has benefited for for decades and decades and decades, um, then you are are going to see a lot more candidates like this succeeding. and And I really hope that this is the beginning of of uh, of a shift that occurs nationwide and hopefully moves into November. Yeah, I'm reminded too when I look at some of the prosecutors who might be winning in November who have just said they're not going to prosecute a set of crimes. Is that like remember that? People made this up. Like, what is a crime is just something that people have done that we have decided that there's a consequence for. It's not like set in stone. So, you know, you've heard me talk about the felony theft amounts for a long time. Like some random person in Florida just decided that theft over $300 is a felony. Like people just made this up. And I think that what you see with some of the prosecutors who are who are running in a progressive is that they're just like, we're not going to prosecute these things. Like it just doesn't make sense. And like, that is their power to do. And that this is how we can, like one of the things I'm fascinated with now is like how did mass incarceration become mass, right? And it became mass through like, like a series of a thousand decisions that were made up without the best intentions of our communities in mind. And like, there's a chance for people to just dismantle that from within and prosecutors are a key part of that. I worry about the language that the prosecutors are the most important part of the criminal justice system. I don't think that's true. I think that's like a little, I think that is dangerous in some ways. Uh, but I think that there are many pieces of the, the system that is really important. And like the prosecutors are one, we should change the laws. Like that would actually make everything easy. And I think that lawmakers have an incredible role and we can't let them off the hook. And just like with the police is if there are police around, like they could actually choose just not to engage in a certain set of uh, behaviors and and just not target things. And so, Sam, uh, this race that you reference and some that are around the country are reminding us that, like, people made this up. And because people made it up, we can dismantle it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. And now my conversation with Wesley Lowry and Kimberly Kimbrell. Wesley and Kimbrell, thanks so much for joining us today on Pot to the People. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. So you both are working on um, an incredible analysis of homicide clearance rates in a set of departments, police departments around the country. I have a lot of questions about it, but just as we sort of open, can you talk about like how did this even become a project? Sure. So I guess I'll, I'll kick it off. Um, you know, this has been a conversation that's been happening in criminology uh, for a few years now. And I think in many ways, this project is born out of the work that Kimbrell and I and our colleagues at The Post have been doing for several years around police accountability. Uh, the way I always explain this, right, when you talk about a relationship, because um, that's the those are the terms we framed this conversation about, right? A community of relationships with the police, right? We think about a relationship. A relationship can deteriorate or erode two different ways. It can deteriorate because of the presence of a bad thing, right? Your girlfriend can leave you because you cheat on her. Your relationship can also deteriorate because of the absence of a required commitment, right? Your girlfriend can leave you because you forgot her birthday, right? And I think we have to think about the relationships um, with police and historically marginalized and discriminated against communities in those terms as well. And so we've done a lot of reporting around the idea of what happens when the police kill people. Right. And, and we've documented the work we've done at fate with fatal force, as well as work that activists like you all have done, uh, with mapping police violence. We've looked at the idea and have quantified the extent to which black and brown people receive a disproportionate amount of, uh, fatal police force. But now what we wanted to look at was, okay, so what are the services that, that these same communities are receiving? When a black person is the victim of a murder, what is their likelihood of seeing, uh, their murderer brought to justice? And uh, again, what, we what we've begun to find, um, first of all, was that this was not data that was readily or easily available, much like the police shooting data. We had to go department to department and piece it all together and collect it and clean it and map it. And it's been a you know, huge team at the Post doing this work. But the second thing is that what we're seeing is that many of these same communities that are dealing with disproportionate rates of incarceration and of police violence are also the places where almost none of the most violent criminals in their communities are being arrested. So when you think about the status of that relationship, right, the boyfriend's not just cheating, he's also not showing up at the birthday. Both things are present. And I think that that's part of uh, what we've been trying to look at. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, actually, I think it was interesting because um, 
One of the first cities that we focused on was Chicago, actually, before we officially named the series. Um, was that in dis- November, November, 2016. November 2016? Uh, Wes and I did the story. Um, it was the end of the year. Everybody had been writing about the escalating violence in Chicago. And um, so we went out there and we collected, you know, more than two decades worth of data to find out how frequently uh, these cases were cleared when there was a killing. And we saw in areas like, you know, Inglewood that, you know, there were blocks and little regions where they had like a 10 percent, less than 10 percent clearance rate when there was a killing. And so we decided to go out there and see where the disconnect was. And so then you had, you know, what the police said was happening, which is people in the community won't talk, you know, it's snitches get stitches, you know, kind of thing. But that's really like a broad stroke to kind of summarize some much deeper problems. And so we actually ended up profiling a woman who had lost her son. You know, he had done well in school. And, uh, She's like, you know, it wasn't about gang violence or snitches get stitches. It's like literally she had this detective who was working on the case and the mom was literally going around with going around with like a a cane, you know, trying to get evidence and give this to detectives like she was going to her neighbor. She was looking for cameras. Who has cameras in their neighborhood? Let me see if I can find this. And then she'd find uh, a place, a little shop that had a camera at the same exact location where her son had been killed. And she talked to the shop owner. He's like, yeah, I got the video of that from that date. But by the time I know, right? So she's like piecing all this together from Facebook, social media, getting all the tips where this person was located, who it was. And then by the time um, detectives had gotten out there, the video had been, um, it wasn't there anymore. Uh, And so she expressed a lot of frustration. And that's what we found, particularly as we continued, as we did the series, is like, you know, you have some detectives where the information isn't getting transferred, they're not getting the information enough, or they're just kind of like, hey, we, we have no connection with the community and nobody's talking. When these people are like, you know, we're trying to help you and we're trying to give you as much information as we can, but we are fearful. We can't just up and leave this community when something happens. Right. And so I feel like that story helped us realize what we needed to go after with the series. One of the things that I, so I have a, a lot of, I have a lot of questions, but one of the things that, uh, which you just said makes me think about is about the caseloads. And in my head, it's like, you know, before I read your story, I was like, they have these, like, everybody has like 500 cases and they're like swamped. And then I read this, and I'm like, that does not seem to be the case. It seems like the caseloads that detectives have are actually like, I don't know, five, 10, like less than social workers, less people than teacher. You know, it actually just, that was a myth that your story busted for me. So I'd love to learn like what, I don't know, how did you, how was uncovering that for you? Or like, what, is there even another part of that that I don't know? Yeah, I mean, I think caseloads, there are, you know, there are detectives who are overwhelmed with caseloads because you can't just look at the the five cases that they get. And actually, let me take a step back and um, and Wes can talk a little bit more about this, but there is a magic number. You should have like five or few, fewer cases. That's like best practices for detectives. If you are going to solve cases and have a closure, you should not have more than five new cases a year. That being said, and when we say just so I'm clear, it's five, it's like five active cases, right? New, no, new. No, like so for 2018, okay. you only get five cases, and right. that therein lies part of the problem. But if you if you're in a Chicago, okay. where you have a bunch of unsolved cases from last year, guess what happens to your number? Yeah, it's, but you're not saying if if I get five in January and close three, then I should get three more, right? No. 
No. No, and the and the reason that is, and and part of this has been a little revelatory, is like figuring out. I know. The, teach me. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, ready. To. I'm here. Go ahead. The uh, you know part of it's been about learning some of the intricacies of these investigations, right? And so if you have a homicide tomorrow and you're the detective who picks it up, right? You have a lot of work that happens in the first few days. Obviously, you're at the scene, you're processing um, evidence, you're probably filing for search warrant affidavits. I want the person's phone. I want to figure out who they've been emailing. You know, you're trying to figure out who your suspect is, right? You're locating witnesses. Then you've got a period of time, that investigatory period of time, right? You are um, you're following up with those witnesses. You're going back to that person who said no the first time and asking them again. You're trying to build a case so that charges can be filed. Even once charges are filed, if you're the detective on that case, you still play a role in making sure those witnesses don't go missing, don't disappear, they stay safe, okay. going to okay. the court date with them, making sure that, you know, that you have an ownership of this. And so in many cases, detectives will say that a lot of their work, or at least their more restrictive work, comes even after an arrest, right? That a lot, that there's hard work to try to find the suspect and arrest that suspect. But then until that trial is over, you're still the primary point of contact for witnesses, for if new information surfaces, if someone who was gone all of a sudden pops back up, well, you need to um, re-interview them. And so there's a sense that in a given year, you should only be taking on five additional new cases. Now, again, like what Kimbrell was saying, if you live in a city or you work in a city where you have massive backlogs of unsolved cases, well, you've got your five from last year where you're still supposed to be interviewing witnesses, right? You haven't made an arrest yet. And then you've got the five from the year before where you're supposed to be interviewing witnesses. And so what happens is the more of these active and lingering cases you have, the more thinly you're spread, right? And so you have a detective where, you know, some of the cities might have an average where, look, their detectives are only dealing with four or five a year, but their solve rates are so low from the previous years that it's masking the fact that their detectives are really carrying perhaps more than a dozen cases. And I would just add on to that. Um, just take, for example, one of those cases, and Wes talked about going to court. You know, this court case can take three years just to get started, really. I mean, you know, beyond discovery and things like that. So when you have a person who's a witness to a crime, you're asking for an investment of at least three years. And like he said, you have this detective who has to continue to communicate with this person. There was a case in Indianapolis where the detective told me that essentially uh, uh, one of their witnesses who had uh, witnessed the, the, the killing agreed to testify, um, had refused protection, and so he was living in his own home and he testified in court. Well, the second court case came up, somebody came, knocked on this guy's door, and shot and killed him. So now you're you're gone a witness. What has to happen? So in a case like that, the detective has to continue to call other sources while he's still getting new cases. And so it's very important for them to maintain that relationship, but also to get new witnesses while you're still working on this older case. Did you learn anything about the demographics of who becomes, like, what do we know about, like, who becomes detectives? That's really interesting. And, and there's not a ton of, you know, every time we start looking at who the officers are, it becomes exponentially more difficult. Like there's an increased degree of difficulty. We still don't know who all the officers are who, who, for example, shot and killed all the people sure um, in 2015 or 2016. Um, in kind of broad terms, one thing that has been really interesting is a lot of, um, you know, the economics factor into this, right? You have a lot of police departments and the police departments will be the first and eager to tell you this, that some big budgetary cutbacks because of the recession in 2009. And they've never recovered. It would recession. be what they would say. So that's right. what the Chicago police might say, right? Or many other cities. Stockton they would, said that. You Stockton. Said, you know, and then so they say, look, we shrunk, we shrunk, we shrunk. 
And at meantime, we were being asked to do all this other stuff, counterterrorism and drug stuff and right school resource officers. You know, there has have been we have asked more of our police in recent years. And there's an argument about whether we should have or should not have the now that these departments have money again, they're beginning to hire. And one of the one of their chief kind of complaints or frustrations about this is that detectives aren't just made overnight, right? It is a more difficult job. It's investigatory in a way that's different. Um, you have to, there's a ton of paperwork involved. I mean, there's, it's a job that has to be trained. You can't just show up at the police academy and say, okay, now you're in charge of solving murders. And so because of that, even as, as departments begin hiring back, uh, what they're seeing is, um, a lag time before these folks are ready to be actually serving as detectives. Uh, That's interesting. Generally, broadly, you know, I've had chiefs and homicide commanders say that they really like moving folks over from drug and gang units or folks who spend a lot of time working on the ground, developing long-term sourcing. Um, there's a guy who wrote one of the homicide textbooks, and he talks about that, like, look, most of your homicide detectives, it's not just about the training. It's also about you just have to actually get known in this neighborhood, get known in this place, get known by the players, because, again, so much of your your job is convincing people to talk to you. And as we all know, whether it's from as a reporter, whether it's as an activist, as anyone who spends any time in communities that they're not from, on day one, you're fighting an uphill battle. Right. By year by year two, all right, some folks know you, some folks trust you, and now maybe you can make things happen. And in addition to you know, being able to get their detectives up to speed, which is the case with Chicago and a bunch of others who say it may take a year or two years until you're like a full-fledged homicide detective. You also have the issue where New Orleans points out they're having a really hard time actually even attracting police officers. Um, Problem they made. (laughs) And, you know, they talk about that. And they actually said that in the story, that this is partly our own doing, but they Mm -hmm. said because of the climate with, um, you know, police accountability, that it's hard for them to attract officers. And let's also be real, like New Orleans has also a a, a different dynamic as well, because they're one of the um, few departments that has actually been investigated by the federal government and threatened to change and reform because of, you know, systemic um, allegations of civil rights violations. And so they have this extra layer of, you know, difficulty when it comes to attracting police officers. So and they're already understaffed. They have a hard time attracting officers. So what do you do when you're already like low in detectives? Did you learn anything about the relationship between the state's attorney's office and police departments in this process? And I asked because the metric that you use is arrest. So what I would say for most people, clearance is experience is solved, right? And like yes. that is not... When you say clearance, that is not what you mean when you say clearance. Uh, So they can have a, so even in places like Baltimore, low, like low everything rate, right? Like every metric is low. So low number of arrests pertaining to these. And I would surmise, not looking at the data, that it's even a lower number of convictions, uh, which seems to point to like something about the relationship between the state's attorney and the police. I know that's not like a folk that wasn't the focus of this, but did you learn anything about that or questions for later? Sure. And, and this is something that we're going to keep. It's a string we're going to keep pulling throughout the year. In fact, we're working on a big piece that Kimberly's the anchor of on prosecutions. Boom. And so forthcoming. I wish I could see her face. It's great. <laughs> she has all these faces. But that said, we have, um, you know, we've we've met and talked with prosecutors and district attorneys in many of the cities where we visited, right? Again, our universe, we, we've got data from more than 50 cities uh, going back a decade. We've probably been on the ground in close to two dozen of those cities by, at this point, and, and we'll probably hit more than 50 by the end of the year. Um, what we've seen, first of all, is that these relationships just structurally look different city to city, right? Um, for example, in Boston, in the state of Massachusetts, the district attorney's office 
is the actual jurisdictional authority over a homicide investigation, right? They're in charge. The district attorney can change who the homicide detective is on a case. He can, he can say, no, go back and get more witnesses. And that's not about the charging. It's from the moment the body hits the ground, the district attorney is theoretically in charge. And so there, it's extremely important that there's a very close relationship because this guy in a different office can in fact blow your investigation up and change it, right? In Newark, in New Jersey, for example, when you call the Newark police to talk about homicide, they don't even want to talk about it because it's a similar setup. Nope, the district attorney runs that. And in fact, in that in Newark, the district attorney runs um, runs the entire investigation. They have a team of detectives and they send them out, right? So they're actually doing the investigative work, right? Um, in other cities, I was just in Richmond and we were meeting with the uh, state's attorney there um, and the state's attorney over homicide. And, and Richmond's a bit smaller city than say like a Baltimore, obviously, or a New York or an LA. Um, but it's a kind of case where they work extremely collaboratively. Even while we were there in the room, the district attorney over homicide was taking calls and text messages with the homicide commander for the police department. And so those relationships are extremely important um, because there are because what you don't want to happen is you don't want the police to run a bunch of investigations where the evidence is shoddy and then they can't be prosecuted because that discourages everyone. Um, and you also don't want um, the p- police being discouraged thinking that their prosecutors hold too high of a bar or too high of a standard, right? Now, what the prosecutors will all say, and I might be inclined to agree with them, is you don't want to put handcuffs on anyone who didn't do it. Um, in fact, you can always, you always want to push for a higher bar or a higher standard, but there is a push and pull there, right? Because the bar or the burden of proof for an arrest is very different than a burden of proof for a grand jury indictment later, much less for a conviction after that. And so there is this kind of balancing act between, and what a lot of police will say, I mean, one of the first interviews we did for this project uh, was with the police chief in Omaha, Nebraska. And I remember him looking at me and he says, well, you know, one thing you need to understand when a police department has 30% or 40% of their cases that have never resulted in an arrest, that's not 30% of the murders where we just have no idea who did it. He actually said it's probably like 5% where we actually genuinely don't know who did it. But we can't just go put handcuffs on someone because we know, because we quote unquote know they killed that guy, right? It's not how our legal system works. Maybe it did work a little bit more like that previously, but the goal is that that's not the how it's supposed to work. It's questionable. <laughs> but that is like, yes, high function. Yeah. And I, I, I was going to say, I think it's also interesting. There was a case recently um, when I was in Detroit where uh, a kid, well, he's 19 years old, young man, got killed. And um, so they made an arrest and they closed the case, right? It was cleared because they made an arrest. And so as I'm talking to the detective, uh, who was actually new, had only been a homicide detective six months, he, uh, I said, okay, well, tell me about how you made this arrest. And so he's like, oh, okay, well, we got these two people on video footage, and uh, we made the arrest because we saw them, and and then they were calling his cell phone, and then all of a sudden the call stopped at the same time. I read that. I read the story. <laughs> right? It's like the end of the story. Right? I know this. So he, he, so at, at the well, same the time, coincidentally, <laughs> awesome. The body was there for like a whole day or something. Yeah, it was crazy. Overnight. like. Right. The, People had heard gunshots the night before. It was like 10 o'clock at night, something like that. Nine hours later, they find the body at the playground, like in front of the swings, right? So they make an arrest. Um, and he's like, okay, so we see these these three guys come running out of the park after after the killing. So we made an arrest of two of these guys. I said, wait, wait, wait. So let, let me do the math. So you made an arrest with two of the guys, but you saw three guys running out of the park. Well, what happened to the third guy? They're like, oh, well, we, you know, we're waiting on some forensics, blah, blah, blah. We didn't make an arrest. But the case is closed, right? Well, yes. And so I think that that's another thing that's happening. You know, like you said, uh, people can be relieved because they're like, oh, this case is closed. Oh, there's an arrest. But 
there could be other uh, people who are actually involved in the killing. Um, and also, like you said, once it goes to prosecutors, um, you know, the case may either fall apart. There may not be a conviction. Um, other, a lot of things could happen where that person doesn't, the main person doesn't get prosecuted. Or maybe, maybe others don't. Now, one of the reasons that I asked you that too is I interview, you know, I talk to a lot of people for the pod and some of the people are either people running to be state's attorneys or state's attorneys. And what they always say, everybody, every state's attorney I've ever talked to who's running is like, Deray, we know the most violent criminals. We should go into communities and like we should target the most violent. Like that is sort of their thing, right? Like we know the people who are committing the most crimes. Uh, and, and what is interesting reading this is that like it doesn't seem like that pans out to I don't know, like that this 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 idea across the country that we know the most violent offenders and that part of our strategy is like targeting the most violent offenders and da da doesn't seem to I don't know bear out in the in the way the numbers look, which is why I was curious about the relationship between the prosecutors and police chiefs. Well, also keep in mind this, and I'm just going to open the Pandora's box. Just because you know the most violent offenders doesn't mean you have the most prosecutable case. Yeah, no, certainly. Well, that and that's exactly it, right? That you can. If you think there are 10 people committing violence in your town, right, you can harass those 10 people all day, every day, right? But then when someone is killed, you probably need one of those 10 to snitch on the other one, right? And, and so what is your relationship with those 10 people who you have now been harassing all day, every day, right? That there is a, you know, that in many of these cases, um, whether they be shootings, whether they be, I mean, in a lot of the, a lot of the homicides are shootings, or the vast majority of them are shootings, um, especially stranger shootings, right? That someone knows who committed the crime, but that someone what knows because they were in the car right, with right. the shooter, <laughs> they were also or yes. they were the person they the shooter was it. trying to <laughs> to kill. Right. Right? You know, and I think that there's a and it's and so it's double barreled there, right? On, on the one hand, again, if these are folks who feel like they're they're being harassed, they feel like the cops are picking on them, they feel like the system is structurally unfair, right? What is their incentive? To now provide information about someone who they probably know personally committing a crime. On the second hand, I mean, I was just talking to, um, I was talking to the state's attorney in Chicago, uh, Kim Fox, uh, a few weeks ago, and, and after they had a, a weekend of a ton of shootings and, and several murders, and she was talking about this idea that in many cases, folks just genuinely believe they can deal with this themselves in a way that's more efficient right. than than dealing with the police. Right? If someone someone shot my brother. I can figure out the streets know who shot him. I can figure it out. And tomorrow I can deal with this. Right. And that for, and so I think that's the other thing. Part of our project has tried to look at this cycle. How does, how does impunity breed further violence? Right. If you live in a neighborhood where no one is ever arrested for murders and then someone murders your loved one, your, what, what your human nature tells you is that the system's not going to, get justice for you and in fact that you are not only entitled but probably obligated to go avenge this murdered loved one not even just human nature you're like memory tells you that correct right one of the one of the things that's interesting that police uh, departments across the country are starting to do now and you see this in houston with um the chief art acevedo is not just looking at the homicides but the um non-fatal shootings (laughs) because their idea is that the non-fatal shootings eventually some of them become um, fatal shootings, and yeah. so where well, they were intended to be fatal, but the person was they a missed, shot, right? or yeah, they 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 didn't get to you know they weren't successful in the killing, and so they're trying to tie two and two together, and so uh, what they're trying to do is have either homicide detectives work more closely with people detectives who are working those cases, or in Houston, I think one of the things uh, that they're trying to do is 
at some point in the future, have homicide detectives also investigate those non-fatal shootings so they can actually make the connections quicker. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because the majority of people who are shot in America in a given year live, right? When you saw it, there's the weekend that got all the headlines in Chicago, 72 shootings, 12 of them fatal. Well, that means there were 60 people who were shot. And the difference between a fatal and non-fatal shooting is how bad was the aim of the person shooting at you and how close are you to a trauma center, right? There are actually very little substantive differences between a shooting that's fatal and non-fatal. And so this idea is, you know, how we have such a large focus on fatal shootings and homicides, and we understand why, right? People are being killed. Um, But it raises a real question of what are we missing when we focus just on the shootings where someone is actually killed and not the shootings, um, or at least not with the same effort, the, the shootings where someone lives. Because again, you now have a living victim who might attempt to avenge themselves, who may fear additional um, you know, violence being targeted towards them. Yeah. It, there's an entire dynamic there that has to be understood. One of the killings that we went to when we went to Detroit, and they were you know, great. They gave us full access to their homicide unit. We went out to the killings. But one of the killings um, had involved somebody, the person who died, had been involved, um, at least the police said this, in a non-fatal shooting less than 24 hours earlier before this person's death. And so you see this over and over again. And so I think it's it's going to be interesting for people to focus, like Wes said, on non-fatal shootings in the future. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. So I know y'all like to talk about LaCroix water. It's not LaCroix. It's not LaCroix. It's LaCroix. Enjoy LaCroix sparkling water. A a LaCroix just rolls off the tongue. You can enjoy LaCroix sparkling water, a calorie sweetener and sodium innocent beverage with nothing artificial. If you make the switch to LaCroix sparkling water, a healthier alternative is there for you and for your lifestyle. Zero calories, zero sweeteners, zero sodium, completely innocent. And you know, there are very few drinks on the market that are innocent. All natural, it's environmentally friendly, and it's flavored with fruit essences. So it makes you feel fancy with every sip. There are 14 LaCroix flavors that include key lime, tangerine, mango, apricot, and passion fruit. There's also peach pear, coconut, lemon, lime, berry, cran raspberry, orange and grapefruit and there's also pure which is unflavored you know if you're trying to do the pure thing and those round out the lineup the LaCroix family also includes six LaCroix curate flavors pina fraise pineapple strawberry pombaya appleberry cerise limon cherry lime kiwi sandia kiwi watermelon puree pepino blackberry cucumber and melon pomelo cantaloupe pink grapefruit LaCroix Curate has a bold flavor. LaCroix Sparkling Water and LaCroix Curate Sparkling Water are gluten-free, vegan, and non-GMO. LaCroix Sparkling Water and LaCroix Curate Sparkling Water are both available nationwide. And for more information, you can join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water or check them out at LaCroixWater.com. And you can see a full list of retailers at LaCroixWater.com as well. What did you learn from uh, detectives, like, about the role of tips? So, like, did you—is there anything you learned? I think the thing that um, I thought was very interesting is that everybody's so hopeful on, like, all sides of this when it comes to that. Like, the police—like, departments and detectives, like, they're like, oh, I'm going to put something on Crime Stoppers because I haven't gotten any tips in the last couple of weeks. And so they, they feel like it's a, a very effective tool. And then also people in the community, families feel like, particularly in Chicago— um, if they could get more money toward their Crime Stoppers tips, that they have a greater chance of like uh, getting some closure for their case. Interesting, but we don't. There's nothing to suggest that that's true. Not that I've seen. I mean, I, I, I do think that there's. I mean, 
on the one hand, it's unquestionably true that these cases can't be prosecuted unless people tell the police what happened. Right. Or if the police find out what happened. Sure. Right. It's unquestionably true that these cases cannot move forward if people, if, if somehow what happened doesn't enter the public record, they they can't prosecute a case. Right. I was just with a family in Richmond. Um, and it was a case where, uh, the, it likely would not have been solved. A woman hit by a kind of random gunfire. She didn't know the person who was shooting. Um, he wasn't targeting her. He was attempting to shoot someone else. Mm-hmm. And there was someone in the community who saw what happened. Someone, by the way, who himself had a criminal record, had a history with the police, not someone particularly incentivized to call 911 and start spilling about what happened, and who decided, look, I'm going to tell the police what happened. And that the shooter, the killer, is now in prison. He's been convicted of the crime, and it would not have happened without this cooperation, right? Mm-hmm. We know that in most of the cases across our 50 cities where the police say no one has been arrested, the reason the police give for the lack of arrest is that they don't have cooperative or willing witnesses, right? Again, it becomes difficult, especially with active investigations where you can't actually look at all the paperwork. You can't actually see, oh, well, you you, you guys really know this or you don't know that. But what the department by department tells us is that the majority of their unsolved cases are their cases that no one's been arrested in are cases in which they can't get anyone to tell them what happened. I would also say, like, um, you know, we talked about this in our Chicago piece a couple of years ago was this idea of heater cases, you know. Heater like, or feeder? Heater. 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 Like okay. your, you know, your little furnace when you, it was okay. cold at night and your mom had a little gas heater, you you know, or electric, you moved from room to room. Um, like these heater cases. That's say, what Maybe gas I was heater the only are you one. taking from room to <laughs> room? Little, you know the little no, electric, electric one. Electric heaters, I got it. You said gas. Yeah, heater. Sorry. Gas. You said gas. electric, sorry. Like, Why did you live in? I didn't know the portable <laughs> gas heaters. No, it was the little electric space heater, like a heater case, which is like something that's on fire, you know, like, for example, like if somebody gets killed in downtown Chicago. Everybody's like, what? What happened? You know, and so they're going to put every resource (laughs) into solving that because you don't want to have an impact to like tourism and, you know, all these other factors that could happen. police officer got killed in Baltimore and we still don't know. Right? (laughs) And so stuff like that. So there's like a heater case, the idea that you, you put all these resources behind like solving this case. But what ends up happening is that like, if a case isn't a heater case and you're just one of the everyday people that got killed, you know, in, you know, Auburn Gresham or, you know, so somewhere on the South Shore or South Side, um, like, what happens if you're not getting tips for those cases? They're just essentially, as the detectives told us, they're sitting dormant. Like, and I'll say this from what detectives told me, there's nothing to work on. And I know that's, like, probably really hard to hear, but there's, there's if there's not an active lead they're working on other cases. There's this huge backlog. They're working on what's right in front of their faces, the new killings that are showing up. And so your case might actually be in a pile, and they're waiting for an active new tip. And so if you do get a Crime Stopper, say there's, I don't know how frequently they actually run them, if they run them closer to when the homicide occurred, but if you put one out there, I guess, six months, a year later, you might actually be breathing more life into a case that has kind of sat dormant for a while because then those cases eventually go to cold case and the departments have far fewer detectives working in cold case sometimes one maybe two who are taking on all these like unsolved cases and it's like trying to make a dent in those and so something like crime stoppers may give a little bit of life in a case that has been dormant for a while what we haven't talked about is like the obvious one of the biggest conclusions of your your combined work mm-hmm. is around uh, what you found out about race as a part of this certainly and you know, again, at the at the fifty thousand foot level, uh, what we've seen is that 
black people are the least likely to see their murders result in an arrest. Uh, what we found is concentrated pockets, primarily in black neighborhoods across all the major American cities. So we know, you know, like you could you could show on a map, like if you get killed in this neighborhood, the likelihood of it being solved is like Zippo. Yeah. No, I mean, places where murder is functionally legal, right? Where the vast majority of murderers do not get arrested for That's it, interesting. Right? That's like um, such a sentence, and places where murders are functionally legal. And I think that challenges people's perceptions, um, certainly white people's perceptions, of what policing looks like and what service looks like. Well, if someone murdered me, you know, the murderers will go to prison, right? Well, actually, the majority of pe- Americans who murder another American don't get arrested for that murder. And if you murder a black person, you're, you're probably all right. Tell me about Boston. So Boston, for example. So we did our big piece looking at uh, disparities in arrest rates based out of Boston, right? And Boston's a city where uh, 90% of white murder victims have their killer arrested. 90? I don't know if I read that part of it. 90%. Wow. Um, while somewhere in the 40s, I think maybe 42. it's 42%, 90%? 90% of black murder victims see their, yes. That is wild. And so what that means is that you and, – and that's before you even look at the, start looking at the raw numbers, right? So over the course of that decade, uh, the city of Boston had somewhere around 50 or 60 white murder victims. 57. 57. And then 435. Go here with the numbers. Go here with the numbers. I got his back on the numbers. All right. So what was that number, Kimberly? So 435 black victims, 254 were unsolved, 57 white victims, only six were unsolved. So again, That's really, a white wow. person living in Boston statistically had almost no chance of being murdered in the last decade. But if they were, their murderer was going to, to prison for this. Right. While a black person in Boston, again, you have to remember, black Bostonians don't make up a massive part of the population in Boston. Right. Much higher chance of and likelihood of being murdered and also you know, less than half of the likelihood that their murderer would end up being well, arrested. If I had to say like, what I thought the top three cities were, Boston would not be one of the top three cities for such a low Clearance rate. It's the widest disparity, actually. Yeah, the widest of any major any of the major cities we've looked at. Right? Forty-eight point, which wow. is pretty wild. To get back to what Kimberly was saying, though, about heater cases, because uh, I think because I think it it speaks to again some of the underpinnings of the entire project and and part of what we're looking at. All right. Well, example I always think of is a few years ago, uh, the NBA star Dwayne Wade had a cousin who was killed in Chicago. Um, it was a shooting in a bad neighborhood where shootings happen all the time, but the victim happened to be related to. A uh, A-list celebrity, someone who is big and important. There was political pressure. The mayor wants this solved. The police want this solved. People are tweeting about it because it's linked to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, right? And guess what? That was a case where tipsters came forward and the case was solved. Someone Within was arrested. Days. Within days. Now, this, now, had her last name been different? Statistically, what we know is that case never would have been solved. But what I think that I think that begs a question. I was in. In Chicago, I think it was in 2014 or 2015. Okay. And I think that it necessitates a bigger and broader question, right? That is the most difficult type of murder to solve, right? The shooting of a stranger in a bad neighborhood where no one trusts the police. Those are the ones we're told that can never get solved and are so difficult. But they did in that case. When everyone cared, when everyone prioritized, the Chicago police solved that murder. What would a city look like if that city decided we solve every murder in our city? Right. And that raises some resourcing questions. So maybe we're not running the kids off the corner or we're not harassing the guy with the beer in a, in a brown paper bag. But what we're saying is in our city, if you victimize someone else violently this way, we are going to make an arrest. What would that one, that devotion of resources do uh, to these types of solve rates? Two, what would that type of public prioritization 
do in terms of motivating uh, the public to participate when it was clear in that case that Chicago wanted to solve this murder because this was a big national controversy. Mm -hmm. The public came forward and helped out. Right. What if every murder received that level of attention from not just the media, but the powers that be right. The mayor's having a press conference talking about it. The, you know, what would that look like? And then how would that increase in solve rates feed a cycle of justice, right? We live in a cycle of impunity now. Most murders don't get solved. Very few murders with black victims get solved. And then that failure to solve them leads to additional violence. What would a cycle of justice look like? Have you gotten any gleanings of, of how we could do that that doesn't just add another $500 million to police departments? Because right? you asked the police this, and they literally are, I mean, they said, it, you reporting your story. I know from being in a room with them, they're like, we need infinitely more money. You're like, it is unclear whether that is going to be the solution. So like, do you have a sense of, you know, I even think about the the part of the story that talked about like not having people, the one place that had people not work like the 4 a.m. shift because it's like you're not interviewing anybody. For, like, I was about to talk about resource that, yeah. allocation. So like, yeah. Detroit, it's interesting. So the, the police chief and the, they have a new police chief, um, which they've had several Police it was chiefs. like this guy's like the ninth and eight years or something like that. Yeah, eight and nine like years that. or something like that. There's been a lot of police chiefs. Um, Detroit was also another city that was under federal oversight for reform. It took them a long time, I think almost 10 years, um, to actually get out from under the federal government. Um, but essentially, they don't have money. The city was one of the few cities um, to go bankrupt, one of the largest cities in America, actually. I believe the largest, actually, city largest in America mm-hmm. to go bankrupt uh, around 20—I I don't want to fudge the years. But anyway, so they didn't have money, and it, it goes to that question, what do you do? And so his thinking is this. We still need to bring down the number of killings. We still need to solve more homicides. We have to think about this differently, right? We have to be more strategic. And so, you know, he hired this guy, promoted him to—well, he didn't hire him. He promoted him to lieutenant— um, and then he's like, come up with a new plan, shake things up. Uh, and he's not afraid to shake things up. And so he basically said, we have round-the-clock detectives 24 hours a day. Why? What are they investigating at 4 o'clock in the morning? You know, they're, all you're doing is either sitting there, waiting for the phone to ring, watching videos. But you can't be out talking to witnesses because it's illogical. And so basically right. he killed off the overnight shift. And he said he got some flack for it. But essentially they bought a whole extra week um, that detectives were allowed to spend investigating their cases and talking to people. And, you know, their arrest rate is still slightly below 50%. But, you know, after they made that change, I believe it went up like 10 percentage points in terms of making arrests and cases. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you talk to criminologists, what some of them say when they kind of chart the recent history of policing is they look at a shift um, in the 90s and then later um, post 9-11 from investigatory policing to uh, what is so-called preventative policing, right? So investigatory policing is a crime has been committed. We need to figure out who committed this crime and we need to bring that person to justice. Preventative policing is we think that person might commit a crime and therefore we need to catch them while they're doing it or prevent them from doing it, right? How do you do that in a way that's not racist? Right, and it's the core of broken windows ideology, right? Right. Your window is broken and so therefore maybe you're a murderer. Let's harass you until we figure it out. Or you broke a window. Right, or or you broke a window, right? Or you're a kid walking down the street with your pants sagging, so now we should pat you down because you might have drugs. And if you might have drugs, then you might have a gun. And if you might have, you know, it's, that's, but a lot of our modern uh, policing in urban areas is governed 
exclusively preventatively, right? It's it's all about preventing the crime, preventing the shooting, preventing with some real questions about whether or not we even know how to do that, right? Or if the police are the most equipped to do the, to do that the prevention all. work, right? And, and so and so I do think that except some criminologists would argue that there has to be a rebalancing of that scale. Right. That in fact, we allow the majority of the worst crimes you can commit against someone to go without anyone ever being brought to justice. And that perhaps that is the, the rot in the system or at least part of it, because what you're doing is you're poisoning the well. You're telling most people, well, actually, if you're a victim of crime, don't ever expect any justice. And now those are the same people who you are browbeating. Well, why won't you folks talk to us and why won't you give us any information? And so I do think that there is a it all goes back to priorities and prioritization, right? We we have police departments, even in some of the poorest departments that have been hit the hardest by the recession, that have the least money. The least money is still fives and tens and fifteens millions yeah, of dollars a, a year, money. right? I would love to have $10 million a year and then have people tell me I didn't have any money. Like, that would be right. great. And so there's a question of what do we ask our police to do? What ideology are we asking? How are we asking them to carry that out? And should there be a rebalancing or readjustment of those scales of what they're being asked to do and how they're spending those resources? And so you could probably devote more resources to this type of investigatory policing without actually leading to some net gain in resources. And I think it's also not just about resources, but as we've been talking about relationships, like if you are in Detroit made this change also, they had every detective, if there was a murder, you know, on the east side, you were going to that. If there was one, you know, North or in West Side, you were going there. So they have these regions now where it's like you have to be familiar with your neighborhood. You have to know who the players are. You have to know who right. the gangs are. You have to know, you know, and so you're more likely to get people to cooperate with you and talk to you because they see that same face over and over again. And so it's not just about the money, but it's like how you're in, you're reacting and interacting with the people within the community. One of the things, too, that you also uncover is the sort of things about the places so that there's some places. So we talk about Boston is like a, a place that is so different. Uh, you talk about these four cities that accounted for more than 7,300 of the black murders with no arrest. So Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, and Philly. So we've talked about Chicago. We talked about Baltimore. We talked about Detroit. This is the first time that Philly comes up. Um, the, in this conversation. Was there anything interesting that you found out about Philly, like the way the police department sort of operates from a structural perspective? Well, Philadelphia is interesting because Philadelphia is a department, much like the others, that has had federal intervention at points, that has brought in reformer chiefs, and that has undergone a pretty massive change in how it operates during the last decade or so. And also, Philadelphia is fascinating right now because we currently have a very different prosecutor in Philadelphia um, than that has been the case. Philadelphia is also a city with a very active and powerful police union, right? And I think that's that's something that interacts with all of these things. We haven't talked a lot about police unions thus far, uh, but that's you know on, on the you know, one I'm always down to talk about. A, a I, know, I know you love your police unions. Love might not be what you know, but you you have a soft spot for the police union. See, the um, yeah, on the one hand, many of these unions and patrolmen's units believe and advance the argument that, look, we need more guys. We don't have enough people. We we want to solve these crimes. And in fact, I, when I was talking to the head of the Chicago union, um, and he was explicit, explicit about the fact that, look, while I think all the patrolmen have slowed down, the detectives haven't slowed down at all, right? That he, the police unions actually argue against the Ferguson effect for homicide, right? Hmm. No, our detectives care about this. They have not stopped doing this work at all. They have not, right? You know, v- now they would say that the patrol officers, well, no, they, they still, but 
what what has been interesting has been hearing union officials say, don't for a second suggest that our detectives aren't still working hard. Right. Uh, there's this belief across policing that homicide detectives are just different, right? Because these are the people, people in some extent. They have to sit in the living room with the mother. And yeah. that they perhaps aren't as swayed by the politics of a moment, but just genuinely like, you don't do this job unless you care about solving homicides. The So Philadelphia has been really interesting there. Now, Philadelphia finds itself with that distinction in part because it was for years one of the most violent cities in the country, right? And so just in raw, if you are a city that has a lot of homicides, you're a city with a lot of unsolved black homicides, just as a general rule, because most of your homicide victims are going to be black. And what we know is that the majority of homicides still go unsolved. And so Philadelphia is not necessarily massively different uh, than those others in that pocket. Now, it's not one that we necessarily think of when we think of the Chicago's and Baltimore. Buffalo in your list, too. And I'm like, Buffalo? I just, like, hadn't even thought about Buffalo. Well, that was, you know, that section, you know, that that graph of that story was really important to me. Like, I cared a lot about it because it was showing that, you know, this was our piece that was specifically about unsolved black murders and that you have cities like Columbus, Ohio and Nashville and Buffalo that have 100, 200, 400 black families where someone was murdered in the last decade and it's never been solved, right? right? So you start thinking, wait, wait, 100, 200 people in black people in Nashville, right? Or Buffalo or and You make that point too, like the family. It's like you think about like mother, sister, brother, cousins times 400 is actually like a huge swath of a place. So all of a sudden the entire black community in, in, a, in a city knows an unsolved homicide. And, right. that, and again, how does that... How does that erode trust before the viral video of the cop beating up the kid on your street? How does that erode the trust or, or diminish that trust before Mike Brown's dead in, on the street, right, for four hours, right? It, we talk so much of our conversation, again, is about the negative interactions, the, the affirmatively negative interactions, right? The police are actively doing something to harm a community. But again, what is the bait? What is the status of the relationship before that happens? And again, what we see is, in a lot of these communities, in a lot of these neighborhoods, predominantly black neighborhoods, there's no expectation of justice. And then the police kill somebody. And then the police are, you know, beat someone. And then there's this kind of viral or political moment. And I think that's key to understanding. Now, uh, as we come to a close, uh, I want to ask, like, what, what can we expect from the two of you uh, next with regard to this topic or, or issues of sort of criminal justice writ large, whether it's the police or whether it's another part. Well, Kimberly's going to do all the work. I'm going on vacation for the rest of the year. <laughs> I thought so. I was going on vacation. <laughs> okay, we're both out. Um, no, I mean, as, as Wes mentioned, we're going to continue to um, write about this, looking at, you know, prosecutions too, like what does happen after uh, there is an arrest and in a case um, and, you know, seeing what we find there. Um, but also I think... Uh, I don't, know, I don't want to say too much, but. Oh, no. <laughs> say it. I mean, I, when we look at the year, and so we've got kind of the rest of our reporting year charted out a little bit, knowing okay. what the other stories we're looking at. So we're going to look at prosecutions. We'll probably, we want to look specifically at intimate partner violence. And, and crime stoppers. We, we, we're going to try to add crime stoppers to this list at the request of <laughs> Dorema Kesson. Um, the, I do, I, I do want to take a good Isn't look at crime I'm stoppers. I'm like fascinated. Maybe I'll write about crime stoppers. Yeah, look, but someone should write about crime stoppers. So all you listeners out there, you should, someone should write about crime stoppers right. and I'll tweet the link. But the, um, you know, and so we've got, we've got a, you know, an ambitious set of, you know, four or five or six things that we're, what we want to keep looking at. And again, all of this is based in the idea of, you know, if we're looking at relationships between law enforcement and the communities that they're, they're pledged to serve and protect, what are all of the different factors in those relationships? And so that's kind of what we're hoping to keep looking at. Um, cause again, 
accountability isn't just about writing down all the bad things that someone does. It's also about figuring out how good are you at doing what your stated mission is. And I think, you know, we could write stories for years and decades to come. I mean, I think what's great about our series, too, is, you know, not only are we presenting data and stats that people aren't familiar with, but we're also presenting a slice of what it's like living in these communities. I mean, the thing that I don't know about West, but the thing that I'm struck with as we visit all these cities from place to place is like you're left with all these families who are hurting and in pain, who are just severely hopeful that there will be a break in their case, that there will be an arrest, but secretly they think that it probably will never happen. And in many cases, it won't. And you're literally talking to these people who are like, oh, yeah, the killer lives across the street or down the block. And, oh, I'm friends with the killer's grandmother. I mean, this is the regular interaction. It's like in the community, you're either killed or the killer or you're impacted by the killer. You're one or the other. And everybody interconnects in such a way, whether it's in Omaha or Tulsa or Boston and in Chicago. And I think people think that they know this story. Oh, because they see what's happening in Baltimore. They see what's happening in Chicago. And they don't really know what it's like living in a community where you're walking around with within, where killers are not brought to justice at all. I mean, think about across our 50 cities, there are almost 19,000 black families who've had someone murdered in the last decade and have never seen the murderer brought to justice. 19,000, right? And that's just across our major cities. We're not even talking about rural areas. There are full states we're still trying to get in. You know, we're expanding our, our data over the course of the year, but we know we can't, we're not gonna be able to capture every single case. It's just, it's impossible data-wise. But what is the, what is the impact of this lived experience of, be, of, of having the system fail you this way? And how does that color your interactions with law enforcement, the criminal justice system writ large for the rest of your life? And, and I think that's something we've really looked at a lot. We, when we publish these pieces, we've got two out, but it'll be three out by the time that this airs. We get dozens, if not hundreds of emails. And a lot of the emails are from people telling us the story of their murdered loved one. This reminds me of when my dad was killed in 2005. Right. This, this sounds like what we dealt with when our son was killed in 2011, right? Can you add my story to the database? Or can I tell you more about what my experiences were like with this police department or with our detective? And again, these aren't just all a bunch of people who are saying, I want to complain about my do-nothing detective who didn't do anything, right? Now, there are some of those, right? But there are plenty of cases where, where a family is just reaching out and saying, look, we believe the police did what they, what they set out to do. They've been working hard, but, we, but this still has gone unresolved. And, and we want to tell you about what that has done to us and what that's meant for us. And in the cases of some people, it's not the first time. You know, you talk to people and say, well, you know, is there anybody else in your family who's been murdered? And they start rattling off a list. And so this is, you know, justice that you haven't had, not just once, but maybe two or three times. Is uh, One of the questions we ask everybody is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Back when I was covering Walter Scott, and so that would have been 2015. Um, one of my editors said, remarked to me um, that the more emotional a story is, the less emotional the reporter should be about it. And I think about that still a lot. Um, the work that we do is fundamentally emotional and charged, right? You're going to someone's home and listening to them talk, talk about losing their loved one, or you're going to someone's home and asking them about the police officer who killed their son, right? That the, the fundamental facts of the case are emotional. And so I try to use that as a check on myself, right? If I just tell the truth, I don't need any adjectives, right? That if I, if I just tell the truth and walk through what happened and, mm. and apply my pressure to the details of what happened, if I can mm. surface additional truths about a thing, that 
that will prompt the emotion in our readers, right? No, I think good writing is important, and I think structure and frame are important. But, but again, for me, especially on these issues, where you know what I want someone to do is I want someone to start reading one of these articles and say, well, I know that Wesley Lowry at the Washington Post, and he's a hack, and he hates this thing, and then re- read to the end of the story and have convinced someone. Mm-hmm. Um, about our premise. And I think that, you know, we still get plenty of the, the comments and the emails <laughs> that are, you know, that are kind of disparaging, but there are plenty of people who set out reading these stories convinced that they're going to believe one thing about it. And through the presentation of the information, we've been able to convince them otherwise. I know this well, and I brought it, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I love presenting people with new facts too, something that they didn't know before. But um, if I had one person that, there's lots of people who've said things to me over the years that have been Im- impactful, but the one that comes to mind, particularly for this series, is something that Marty Baron had said to me when the movie Spotlight came out a couple years ago and about journalism and, uh, you know, finding truth and sexual abuse case in in Boston. Um, He said, you know, I asked him for some advice, like, what would you tell an investigative reporter? Uh, And he says, just keep doing your work. And I I remember I wrote that down. It's actually a post-it that's on my monitor at work. And... um, I also have it at home. I made him write it down. And so I have it at home and then I have a post-it on my, and it, it just reminds you, it sounds very simple, like just do your work, like that's very basic. But when you're walking into the home of families who have loved their family members and they have been killed and that they have this look on their face where they, they want justice and they're, they're looking at you hoping that maybe you can tell them something to like make them feel better and you can't because you're, you're there to do a job mm-hmm. and you're there to record what happened. And and they're emotional and they're crying and and you're thinking – and this happened to me actually when I went out to L.A. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm with this these two moms I had just met with and they had had their kids killed. One mom had two kids killed and I am in a place where not only is the – Somebody gets killed right now in front of me, they have less than 50% chance of an arrest. When I went to Chicago, the neighborhood was, I think, 8% chance of arrest. I literally just walked into an area where if I get killed, if something happens to me right now, I mean, this is what's going through your head. If something happens to me right now, there is an 8% chance that there will be an arrest. And you and you just that that phrase comes in my mind, you know, just do your work, do your job, because when I do my job, then the rest of the country gets to hear and read what it's like being in that neighborhood. And so you just keep moving forward. Well, we consider you both friends of the pie. Where can people go to learn more about you or find your work? The entire project, um, which is called Murder with Impunity, um, is available to Washington Post and WashingtonPost.com. And I think we're both all over social media. I'm at Wesley Lowry. What are you? Uh, at Kimbrielle Wapo. How do you spell Kimbrielle? K-I-M is in Mary. B is in boy. R-I-E double L. Double L. Boom. Thank you both. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? 
Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts.